1: That's why there's Dr. Clapper. Dr.
2: Clapper is the former head of
1: orthopaedic surgery at
3: Cedar Sinai. The
1: Weekend Warrior show with Dr. Clapper presented by Cedar Sinai.
3: Hey Dr. Clapper. How are you? How are you? Saturday mornings from 7 to 9. Silence is golden when you can't think of a good answer. <laughs> yes, doc, I love your show. Now, here he is, Dr. Robert Clapper. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. I am over the moon. Been doing this show thanks to the great Scott McCarthy for 10 and a half years. And we're going to keep doing this show, I found out, this week. Thank you to the great Gordon Kolodny and Brian Croft at Cedars for Damn making right. it happen. But I've had many guests. But my guest coming up at 8.15 to me is the greatest guest I've ever had. I'm just so excited to talk to him because it's Mark Spitz, the greatest Olympian in my lifetime, the greatest inspiration for me in my life, winning seven gold medals in the Olympics and every one of those races a world's record. He's a Jewish athlete, and it inspired me to do so much with my life because of him. Because in 1972, I was 15 years old, where I'm just dreaming about what I want to do with my life and got to get out of Far Rockaway. And then I find in his beautiful career in life that it began where my love is, Hawaii. Who knew? I didn't know Mark Spitz. Childhood from age two to six from 1952 to 1958, was in Waikiki. And then I find a a quote. Time Magazine interviewed Mark Spitz's mom in 1968, and she said, you should have seen that little boy dash into the ocean every day. He'd run like he was trying to commit suicide. He began swimming in Waikiki. What a magical place to grow up. And it it made me think all week, okay, where in the world of sports, where in the world of art do you see that magical start to a life from the shores of Waikiki? Well, in the world of sports, nobody did it better than Duke Kahanamoku. Yes, he's the father of surfing, But Duke Kanamoku was in five Olympic Games as a swimmer, broke world records. And you have to hear how it all got started. This is from a 1957 TV show called This Is Your Life with Ralph Edwards.
4: And now against the background of Diamond Head Duke, white sand, swaying palm trees, and the warm breeze of the tropic trade winds. Let's tell the story, ladies and gentlemen, of a little Hawaiian boy who became the most famous swimmer in the world, participated in five Olympic Games, Duke Kahanamoku. You got it, How'd right you get the name Duke? Well, it's a long story. Uh, Shorten you know, it for it's... us, will you, Duke? I'll make it short for you. All right. Well, when well, Kamehameha the Great, that was, uh, uh, conquered all the islands. Yes, King Kamehameha. So when he brought these islands together, why, uh, Moku means island. Yeah. And uh, Hana means to wood, I see. So when he conquered all the islands, he brought them together. So when my family or my dad was born, we got the
3: name of Duke Kahanamoku. Now listen to, how, listen to his sister Bernice. He's the oldest of nine children. Here's his sister Bernice telling us how his father taught him how to swim. Can you believe this? Must
4: have been wonderful being raised on a, an island paradise, Duke. Uh, what was Duke's childhood like, Bernice? Well. Brother Duke's childhood days were spent in the water Uh and on the beach. But my father taught him how the old-fashioned method to swim when he was only four years old. What was your dad's uh, method of teaching you, Duke? Well, uh, that's a long story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, as I say. But he did it. <laughs> he threw you uh, kind of over the outrigger canoe. Over the, between the, Over the canoe between the two outriggers. I you know, was splashing all over the place. Save yourself for drown.
3: Save yourself for drown. What a great swimming lesson. Obviously, he learned, and the rest is history.
4: You're encouraged to uh, play in the surf and improve your swimming. You spend all of your spare time at Waikiki Beach. Yes, That's right, fair. Bernice? Yes. Uh, Ralph, he, Brother Duke, did take time off to go to school. And on April 30th, 1900, we all became American citizens. Your childhood years saw Hawaiian history being made, Duke. The abdication of Queen Liliuokalani in 1893, the creation of the Republic of Hawaii in 1894, and the American flag being raised over Hawaii in 1898.
3: And Mark Spitz is in Hawaii in 1958 when it becomes a state.
4: The beach in Waikiki is really your home, and you, Duke, and your brothers take to the sea like ducks to water, outrigger canoeing, body and board surfing, and rowing for the Heilani Rowing Club. That's right.
0: At this time, Duke was actually more fond of rowing than he was of swimming. I know because I rowed against him in many races. (laughs)
4: Dad said, yeah, uh, the voice of an old competitor, Duke. One of your closest friends here from Honolulu, Hawaii, is George Dad Center, world-famous swimming coach.
3: Listen to this. They finally take a stopwatch out to see how fast he is, because nobody knows. They can't believe what they see.
4: If Duke was uh, more interested in rowing than in swimming, uh, how did he become the world's best-known swimmer, Dad? Well, after we
0: would go practice rowing... <laughs> We would go swimming, Mm -hmm. and the various crews would engage in swimming races, and Duke would always win. August 12, 1911 was an important date for Duke, wasn't it, Dad? Yes, it was the first time, very first time Duke entered a formal swimming meet, Mm -hmm. and he swam the 100 yards open straightaway. The timers couldn't believe their stopwatches because they showed that he had shattered the world's record not by fractions but by
4: whole seconds
3: mm. duke swam
4: 100 yards in 55 and two seconds and the world's record was one minute flat wow your great speed attracts the attention of the sports world and you're invited to come to the mainland to participate in the aau circuit meets they can't believe that figure of 55-2. The year is 1912 and the Olympic Games are to be held in Stockholm, Sweden. Your electrifying swimming in the AAU meets makes you a natural choice for the United States Olympic swimming team. And you sail for Stockholm in the summer of 1912.
3: Where he proceeds to get crowned by the King of Sweden.
4: Well, how did he come out there? Well, he won his preliminary
0: and then went on to win the final and shattered the world's record, establishing new Olympic and new world's record. And then, the King of Sweden, King Gustav, crowned him with the laurel wreath, entitled to the victor of the Olympics.
3: And the rest is history. Duke Kahanamoku, as the Olympic champion and world record holder in swimming, and those records lasted for many, many years. Five Olympic games he was in. There's a magic to that childhood of Waikiki. Where in the world of art is that magic? Well, you know this guy. This is Bruno Mars. Bruno Mars grew up. His childhood was in Waikiki. Only not necessarily in the shores, but in the sands. His name was Peter Hernandez. Listen to his story. He is one tough dude, and he was not going to be stopped because of the energy he got from growing up in Waikiki. What kind of style do you have, Bruno Mars? What's my style? I'm a singer. I'm
5: just a singer. Come on, guys.
2: And it's the way he sings his love songs that put Mars into orbit just two years ago. But
4: darling, i still catch a grenade for you. Throw my on a
2: blade for you. Grenade and just the way you are. Both reached number one on the Billboard charts, becoming two of the best selling
3: singles of all time. Bruno Mars born Peter Hernandez. This is from an interview on CBS Sunday Morning from a few years ago.
2: His debut album, Doo wops and Hooligans, sold more than 5 million copies. He was Billboard's top male artist last year. And this week, he'll release his second album called, fittingly enough, Unorthodox Jukebox. At 27, the boy from That's Hawaii like when seems to have it all. He does. Is it sort of a precarious being on top of the peak?
5: Um... I'm a happy dude, (laughs) Lee. The fact that I even get to feel this at this moment is enough, enough.
2: He was born Peter Gene Hernandez on the island of Oahu to a Puerto Rican father and a Filipino mother. His dad nicknamed him Bruno after a popular wrestler. Bruno then added Mars years later. For him and his five siblings, music
3: was always the family business. And listen to how it got launched, working on the sands of Waikiki that energized this little boy. My dad
5: had this 1950s review show, very Las Vegas style, and my uncle impersonated Elvis, and that was my favorite part of the show. Even when you were two years old? When I was two years old. You know what it was? It was because, especially the young Elvis, like, girls were screaming for him. And as a as a young kid, you're like, I want that.
3: (laughs) And at age eighteen, he moves to LA, gets a record contract with Motown, but never makes a record with them, and they drop him. He's at the lowest point. He's eighteen. He's pawning his guitars, struggling here in LA. But the energy from those sands of Waikiki are still in him, and he ain't gonna be denied. Within a few months, Motown had left him too, releasing him from his contract
2: without ever putting out an album.
5: How much of a blow was that when they dropped you? The biggest blow. That was was a hard phone call to call my mom and and dad and say, I'm no longer a signed artist and I got to rethink this whole thing. Broke,
2: he started going to pawn shops. His guitars were all he had left to sell. Going
3: home to Honolulu was tempting, but he resisted. But then he meets Ari Levine, whose father is best friends with my best friend in New Jersey and moves to LA for his dream. And together, Ari Levine and Bruno Mars are writing songs.
5: If I moved back to Hawaii, then I I felt like I would have never made it back up here. I would have been at the Polynesian Review with a ukulele and an aloha shirt, probably singing Elvis tunes, again.
2: So we teamed up with two other songwriters, Philip Lawrence and Ari Levine. Their goal? To write a hit song.
5: We knew that we could do it. If we kept going, if we kept trying, if we kept pushing, we're gonna write the song that's gonna change our lives. And it did. Wrote a few songs that changed our lives. You see the jewelry.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Nothing on You performed with hip hop artist B.O.B. Hit first. (laughs) (laughs) Then he co wrote the CeeLo Green smash, Forget You. (laughs) Finally, Bruno got his second chance at a label. And he made the most of it. Just the Way You Are won a Grammy, one of 13 nominations for him over the
3: past two years, and solidified his status as a star and a heartthrob. It makes you tough. It's a magical place, Waikiki. But if you grow up there, it makes you tough. It made Mark Spitz tough, Duke Hanamoku tough, and listen to Bruno Mars when they say, you know, your songs are a little too sugary. I love this soundbite.
2: There were some critics that said it was too sugary, too soft, too schmaltzy. They
5: can go to hell. (laughs)
2: Does that that bother you? I mean, do the critics?
5: It doesn't bother me. It's just shut up. You know, you write a song then. That's how I feel.
3: God bless you, Bruno Mars. And coming up next, Weekend Warriors, you've been listening to this show for ten and a half years. For me, the greatest guest I've ever had is coming up next, the great Mark Spitz here on The Weekend Warrior Show on 710 ESPN.
1: It's good to be king. Right, King James? Absolutely. And good to be courtly friends on the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. I love it. Man. Be treated like medical royalty with Clappervision. Clappervision. Feast like a monarch on Doc's delectable finds. There we go. And that far rockaway away jester humor. <laughs> Search Weekend Warrior and click on Doc's regal picture. Cool. <laughs> Sound the trumpets. No cortisone, alchemy, or leeches here. Everything's good. Bow, curtsy, like or follow the Weekend Warrior Facebook page.
5: That makes me happy.
1: Cheers. Hey, Sedano. You know there's no better way to start your Saturday than with my guy, Dr. Clapper, and The Weekend Warrior Show, 7
3: to 9 a.m. Saturday mornings.
5: What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant.
1: Sometimes you
3: can call me Smokey. Sometimes you can call me Rocky.
5: Start your weekend off right, listening to The Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Today, I want to be Tito, Dr. Tito Clapper. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers.
3: Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. Thank you, Elton John. But I don't want to talk to Elton John. I want to talk to this man right now, one of the greatest influences in my life, and I cannot believe he's the guest, but I'm so over the moon, the great Mark Spitz. Mark, thank you so much for being with us this morning. My pleasure. Oh, God. Can I play you a soundbite of Duke Kahanamoku's sister, and I just want, Michelangelo's dead 500 years. I can't talk to him, but I can talk to you. I want you to tell me what you think when you hear Bernice, the sister of Duke Kahanamoku, talking about how Duke Kahanamoku, also an Olympic champion, learned how to swim. Must have been
4: wonderful being raised on a, an island paradise, Duke. Uh, what was Duke's childhood like, Bernice? Well. Brother Duke's childhood days were spent in the water uh-huh. and on the beach. But my father taught him how the old-fashioned method to swim when he was only four years old. What was your dad's uh, method of teaching you, Duke? Well, uh, that's a long story. Yeah. <laughs> well, as I say... But he did it. <laughs> he threw you uh, kind of over the outrigger canoe oh, the. between... Over the canoe between the two outriggers. and you know, was splashing all over the place.
3: Save yourself for drowning. Are you kidding me? What does that sound like
6: to you, Mark Spitz? I don't know. It sounds like a program that was called This Is Your Life. <laughs> I've seen that program. <laughs> yeah, those were pretty amazing programs in yes. black and white. Yes. I never, me- I never met Duke Kanemoko, um, but I did meet Johnny Weissmiller. You did? In fact, well- he was actually in the stands sitting about a row and a, I guess a row or two in front of my parents oh who my were seated God. with Kirk Douglas ah! watching, watching me swim in Munich. Oh, my. As a matter of fact, in my sixth race, which was the 100-meter freestyle, um, as I was walking out, paraded out with the other seven athletes because there were eight lanes, mm-hmm. I heard this voice. Go, Mark, go, Mark. <laughs> this is Johnny. And I looked over, and I was going, Oh, my gosh. It's Tarzan. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Listen, I have a soundbite. Listen to this one. This is Johnny Weissmuller with Duke Ahanamoku on that very show. Listen to this.
4: Duke actually helped you to beat him, didn't he, Johnny? Yes, he did. You know, we trained together in the Olympic Games. Yeah. And this big
0: lug, he just gave me all the confidence in the world. <laughs> uh, this
4: is a thrill to see you two it's together, the guy who finally broke his record. Even though he had a feeling that you were going to beat him, he helped you?
0: Well, sure. He used to watch me train and take care of me. He made me, so made me go back and get in that pool and work up and down. He was just like a big brother to the boys. He gave me the work out. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, funny thing, he never, he never worried much about himself. All he wanted to do was be sure that the United States got that one, two, three in the That's Olympic right. Games.
3: That's Johnny Weissmuller. Is that amazing? Oh. <laughs> I can't, I'm, I can't believe right now I'm listening to Johnny Weissmiller, Duke Hanamoko, and I'm talking to Mark Spitz. Okay, I, like tomorrow I put me in a coffin, you can bury me. It's just been an unbelievable life. What's most fascinating of the many things, and again, I can't thank you enough for you never even knowing me. I still haven't shaken your hand. I've just spoken to you. But as a Jewish guy growing up in New York about a million miles away from you, how much you influenced me and so many people, not about swimming, even though I swam on my high school team wearing your Speedo-designed, you know, trunks, but the fact that you did so much meant I. why can't I do so much also? And it's just such a beautiful story. And here's Duke Hanamoku doing the ultimate aloha spirit with Johnny Weissmuller. Just doing good for goodness sake, inspiring people. Mark Spitz, that's what you've done to so many of us. Uh, And so on behalf of all of us, thank you for everything that you did. I mean, maybe you, you don't hear it enough. You hear it too much. I'm just telling you thank you. But I'd like to ask you a few questions if you don't mind. Sure. You talk about going to Indiana instead of going to Stanford to follow this coach, councilman teach us what and you say you became a better swimmer because he was your coach instead of the stanford coach where you initially wanted to go like god had a mysterious path for you that led you to indiana what exactly does a great swimming coach teach a swimmer like you that made you who was already great even better
6: well, I think um, that's a very interesting question, and it has quite a lengthy answer. But the short take your story, time. Uh, uh, no, the short the short answer is, is that he was a great motivator, and he met he made everybody that he came in contact with feel that they were the most special person on the team. It didn't matter whether or not you came to the university as a world record holder, or he was still developing your skills. Although at the level of Getting uh, collegiate swimming, I mean, you had to be pretty good because everybody was there under scholarships, so you just couldn't actually, you know, work out your craft for four years while you were there. There were really no, to speak of, walk-ons. So, um, you know, he he was very interested in us as uh, as athletes, but he also was very interested in us as human beings Hmm. and and perfecting our skills uh, intellectually Hmm. so that we were there academically to also complete four years of college and hopefully have a degree.
2: Mm.
6: As a matter of fact, I was just on a, uh, on a blog for about an hour a day for eight straight days while we just got through with our Olympic swim trials mm. that were in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And there was this big conversation, and it's been pretty pretty up there in the front pages about mental health. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh, we've seen it in tennis. We've seen it in a lot of different sports where some of these athletes have, have, have had these breakdowns. Are these, these issues that they've had, a, I guess, a, a problem with trying to sort out where they're going and what they're doing? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it has to do with public adulation. But part of the problem is, is that a lot of athletes who go through college, and I only speak uh, about college sports, um, there's so much emphasis on being great and being recruited into a, becoming a professional. Mm-hmm. And that's perfectly fine. In some sports, you may have some longevity, like golf. You can play into your 40s or 50s, but certainly swimming or track and field, that's not going to happen, and including mm-hmm. basketball or even football for that matter. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, you know, is there some sort of a skill set that you've learned in college that you could fall back on? Mm-hmm. And the answer is probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody thinks that far in advance, or anybody that's within their team or in their environment has encouraged them to to develop those skills. Hmm. They're only interested in their self-serving ways to make sure that that athlete stays in that sport and continues to be in their winning ways and make money because that's perhaps maybe their meal ticket. And it's as selfish as that may seem, it seems to boil down to something like that. Hmm. So a lot of these, uh, you know, young men and women uh, have have failed to prepare for something in the future. Hmm. And I think that's part of the reason that they have a difficult time trying to muster up, you know, uh, feeling comfortable and confident, and and having these uh, these lapses of feeling sorry for themselves. Mm. I mean, we've seen this with some of the top swimmers in the world that have a tremendous amount of money, mm. um, and yet they find themselves wallowing mm. uh, and and not feeling confident about what's happening in their life. Mm. And part of that is because they fail to prepare for something that is more meaningful or as meaningful, perhaps, hmm. uh, and, and having an education and a skill set so that they can feel confident and, and, and I guess, uh, and, and trying to uh, be competitive and finding a job other than what it was when they were an athlete.
3: Hmm. I'm talking to the great Mark Spitz. I got to thank David Rosen a million times for making this all happen. You're the father of two sons, um, so you can speak as a parent as well, When we talk about Tiger Woods and his dad teaching him all about golf, but what made him the champion that he was, and I'm not looking into his entire life, just as his golf life, but people don't give enough credit to his mom giving him the mental toughness. So I want to know, what is it that your mom and dad said to you that gave you the mental toughness? You obviously had the physical capabilities, but... Was there anything in particular that your dad or your mom said to you that that gave you that mental toughness?
6: Um, you know, first of all, they, they weren't, and we weren't very wealthy as a family, So, but he did provide, you know, for a great home. Mm-hmm. And my mom drove me to practice all the time because I couldn't drive when I was 10, 11, 12, when mm-hmm. I first started off as an age group swimmer. I think that... Um, uh, He certainly pointed out some facts that may have not been as apparent to when you're nine or ten years old. That, you know, he used to ask me, and in those days we only had six lane pools. He said, How many people are in the pool, Mark? And I'd say, Well, there's six, Dad. And he'd go, Well, how many people win? I go, Well, I think there's just one winner. He says, Yep, and you can win from any lane, just get to the finals. Wow. Things like that, you know, wow. um, and uh, just a little bit of a perspective. And I find them and uh, found them to be humorous, to be honest with you. My mom was my greatest advocate. Wow. I think she fended off my my father being too, uh, I maybe too much pressure on me. I think part of that pressure actually came from the fact that I think as I started to become more successful as an athlete, I think I took it upon myself to expect more from myself but I think that's a natural instinct that if you know misery loves company and if the company is that I'm always on the award stand and getting first place I don't want to relinquish that. Mm-hmm. So therefore there's a lot of hard work to get there all the time. And I remember the first world record that I ever broke my coach um His name was George Haynes. He was also the coach of the guy I broke the world record from, Mm -hmm. which his name was Don Schollander, the 400-meter freestyle. And I remember him whispering in my ear, and he said, you know, the world will know what you did on Monday morning. You just went from the hunter to the hunted. Let's see what you can do. And there's a whole different transition when that happens because, you know, we weren't born with a world record certificate. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And we have to basically train and, and have a vision. And I think that my parents gave me that vision Um, as it developed in front of all of us as a family. I certainly wasn't thinking about going to the Olympic Games when I was 14 years old. Hmm. But when I was 15 years old, I was swimming on a team with a guy who had just come back from the Tokyo Olympic Games in 1964, had won four gold medals in swimming, and his name was Don Scholander And I was then swimming right next to him in the lane Hmm. uh, at practice. And so my vision of where the world was and where I thought I wanted to be was in the swimming pool every day. Hmm. And that, that that my parents provided for me with that.
3: That's just, you know, they talk about Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. The rest of us, not you, the rest of us think about motivation in winning. But in the case of Kobe and Michael Jordan, they say, it's that they actually hated to lose more than they loved to win. And it almost sounds like that's what motivated you as well. You didn't want to relinquish it. You were not, the losing just tasted so bad uh, in a sport where there isn't a team. It's really just you in the pool.
6: <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that because I've been asked, obviously, over the last 48 years since I won, or now I guess it's 49 years since 1972, my seven gold medals in Munich, Germany, mm-hmm. I've always said it wasn't so much about the winning. I just despise losing. <laughs> I, I made it. A, I made it a point to think about internally for myself that I was more interested in what those people that I was competing against came to the swimming pool of who was going to decide who was going to become first to finish second place. And I decided that when I left my hotel room to go to either the finals or I left to go to practice or whatever it was, I I made a determination that I wanted to come back as a winner. Somebody had to come back as a winner, and I just said, I've got to put myself in that position. So we didn't even have a thing in those days called visualization. But I was visualizing that it it had to be me and nobody else. And I made it a point that at competition, uh, it's too late to worry about did you train hard enough is basically you have to screw your head on and say, this is about a 90% battle in my mind. My body will follow if my mind can basically take me in that direction. And there are so many people that had they felt the same way that I felt, I probably wouldn't have been on the winner's stand as often. And I think it's the same thing with, with Tiger Woods um, and, and people that are very consistent at what they're doing. And I, I've, I sort of analyzed uh, quantitatively that, I really wasn't that much better than anybody. Maybe three or four percent. And I think that if you look at Tiger Woods or um, Michael Jordan, they're two or three percent better. But we all made the point to always be that two or three mm-hmm. percent better every mm-hmm. time we actually took the either the court or dove into the swimming pool or whatever the sport might be. And and the illusion that we were that much greater was because that's what we had a skill set at doing. Mm-hmm. Not having an excuse that on that particular day if we woke up we didn't feel that good. We made it a point to have to feel that good and we figured out how to get there to the finish line.
3: I believe that your gifts and I'm a sculptor, so Michelangelo is he because I can see his chisel marks in his unfinished works, it's as though he taps me on the shoulder and says, Robbie, move the chisel vertical, not horizontal, to make this cheekbone. Uh, in this marble. It's just, a, it's an awesome thing. And I just love that you talk about you were bestowed natural, incredible gifts physically. But I got to tell you, Mark Spitz, the thing that fascinates me the most about you, for that 2%, 3% you're talking about, is your gifts in psychological warfare. And I what I mean by that is I'm on this Fakakta swimming team in New York, the Farakway High School swimming team, idolizing you with my Speedo Mark Spitz shorts. But all the while, what I'm appreciating is my teammates shaving themselves, doing with oils, all kinds of crazy things to be faster. Can you imagine being any of those other swimmers from Russia or wherever they were that were going up against you? And you have a mustache. You have this beautiful black hair because you like the way it looked. But psychologically, can you imagine what that must have done to your competitors going, I'm so good. I'm going to actually have extra resistance in the water by having my hair and my mustache. It must have been an unbelievable psychological power that you did unknowingly with this incredible benefit.
6: <laughs> you know... The story about the mustache is funny. Um, you have to go back to oh, nineteen seventy two and my coach always wanted all of his athletes at college to look like the clean cut right you know collegiate all american boy. And he said, no, you can't have facial hair. Of course, there was never thought of that anybody would have a goatee or a mustache. But if you think about the musical groups, they all had long hair. The Rolling Stones, the Beatles, everybody. Um, And I just was out of spite when I finished my senior year in 1972, I go, well, I don't have to listen to him anymore when I'm graduating. I'm going to grow this mustache, and it took forever to come in. So I was so proud of this thing after cultivating the thing literally for about three or four months. We went to the Olympic trials in Chicago, and everybody was talking about my mustache. And I realized that if they're talking about my mustache, they're not thinking about how to beat me. So I figured, you know, I might as well keep this thing yeah. and see how it goes. Exactly. And I broke three world records and tied one of my world records in the four individual events that I was going to compete in in Mm -hmm. munich about a month later and i said well it worked for me at the olympic trials i'll keep it but on the Mm -hmm. day before swimming started in munich we had already run through our allocated time at swimming at the venue Mm -hmm. uh they had uh, there's so many different countries that we didn't have enough time to actually practice in the actual real pool that we swam in so there were a lot of other pools in the city that we could practice in but I wanted to go there at exactly the evening hours which our practice times were always in the daytime mm-hmm. to see what the ambient light was like and there was a Russian team there that was the last group that would be using the pool mm-hmm. so I knew a couple of the coaches and I walked from the village about 15 minutes over to the pool and I said can I swim for about 10 minutes and they said sure well, if you can wait a few minutes I'm going to clear out lane number one for you and I said okay fine and I was swimming in lane number one and I noticed that half the coaching staff had actually left And they were somewhere, but I couldn't figure it out. Um, And all of a sudden, I was looking at these flash bulbs. um, At the end of the pool, there were two big underwater windows so that the television cameras could get the turns. And I realized that half their coaching staff were down there taking pictures of me. So I did this stupid stroke. I mean, this crazy stroke when I got in the view of the windows, figuring I'll throw them off at the scent, you know, of how I swim. So as I finished after this 15-minute session, I came back up. True story. And they said you know, my colleagues have never seen you swim personally, but we noticed underwater you have a very interesting stroke. You always <laughs> swim like that. And I, I said, yes, I do. And, of course, he translated that very that very worst in, in Russian to them. And they said, well, we have another question. You've got this mustache. Doesn't it slow you down? I go, and I, by the way, I was going back from that particular training session <laughs> to go shave this mustache off of the ultimate psych for myself. Right. And they And I said, no, it doesn't slow me down. He said, how could that possibly be? I said, well, you see this mustache, it deflects the water away from my mouth. It allows my head to get much lower and my behind to come up and I'm more streamlined. As a matter of fact, it really worked four weeks earlier at the Olympic trials where I broke three world records, and that's the reason why I'm going to keep this mustache. And I left that training session saying to myself, you are an idiot if you want to go and shave this thing off. I mean, this is working perfectly. I didn't even realize that you were getting everybody so far off track. (laughs) Well, guess what? Obviously, I went and swam with the Olympic Games with this mustache, and the following year, every Russian male swimmer had a mustache. Ah! (laughs) That is... Guess what? The guy that got second to me... Excuse me, the guy that got third... Uh, the bronze medal in the 100-meter yeah. freestyle was Vladimir Bure. Mm-hmm. And his son, because he wasn't, didn't have a son and wasn't married at that time, he gets married, has a son named Pavel Bure, which is one of the greatest hockey players just behind Wayne Gretzky. So you can imagine. <laughs> eventually, one day um, at the at the Kings uh, uh, hockey game, mm-hmm. and they were playing uh, Canucks or whatever where he was on it. I'd never met him before. And there was a special arrangement that I could go back after the game and meet him. And Pavel Bury came up to me and he says, I hate you. He says, I know who you are and I hate you. I said, why is that? He says, because you're the reason that I'm a great hockey player because my father wanted me to go in the swimming pool. And I decided to take it so that it was frozen water rather than liquid water. And I, go, I said to him, I said, say hello to Vladimir for me, which is his father's name. and And, and so, you see? Things happen. I got a lot of stories like that. I, I know.
3: I could talk to you for hours, and I really would love to. I, gotta, I probably have time for one more question, even though I, I would love. This is like a million things I wrote down here, and I just didn't even get to any of them. The focus, obviously, of the seven gold medals in 72 and the seven world records in, in that moment, which was just unbelievable. Tell me, in 1968 in Mexico City, When you had the bronze medal and even finished last in one of the races, here again, this is Michael Jordan getting cut by his high school basketball team. You almost need a chip on your shoulder. Was that a chip on your shoulder?
6: Of course. Uh, In 1968, I was 18 years old. Nobody had actually gone to the Olympics and tried to compete in as many events as I had. Mm -hmm. I had not the experience of trying to do that Mm -hmm. um, all in the same competition. It's one thing to have a world record and do it at one particular meet and do a different event in another. uh, But to package them all and try to do them under the same time frame Mm -hmm. was a little difficult. So in two of the events that I held the world record in, uh, I got second place in one of them. As a matter of fact, I only lost this event once, and what happened to be at the Olympic Games, a big event, obviously, was the 100-meter butterfly, and it put that person, his name was Doug Russell, on the Olympic uh, medley relay team, and I failed to get a gold medal there because he was faster, and therefore he had the privilege of swimming the butterfly leg and the medley relay. And uh, I was the world record holder in the 200-meter butterfly qualified first. I think if I had gone a second slower in the finals, I would have won, but I went even better than that. I went about six seconds slower, and I got dead last eighth. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't you know it that it was the inspiration of why I would continue swimming for another four years and do what I did in Munich Mm -hmm. and winning the seven gold medals. And the very first race of those Olympic Games was the 200-meter butterfly, the event that I got dead last in in the finals. And I said, boy, I better get off to a good start. It, ironically, of the four individual events, was the event that I hated the most because it was the most difficult to get through, and it mm. wasn't an easy event. Mm. But it was also an event that I had almost a three-second lead over the field, so I didn't really have to be as sharp for the first event, mm. but I had to get through that event, obviously, mm. and I did. And so that's what, that's, what, that's what I took away from Mexico City, that you know, it's not, it's not that you're going to fall down, it's how well you get up.
3: All the red lights are going off because I'm going too long, but I could care less. So I'll have to figure out how to do the rest of it. I, I just have a last question for you. You're, you're my hero. You are. And you're the hero of so many people quietly behind me. Who do you, other than your mom and your dad, tell me, is there someone that was a hero to you? Who is Mark Spitz's mentor, hero, someone that he admired? in any field and i that includes art sports education is there someone's teachings that really touch you
6: i think that I, I don't think as a kid i had too many heroes but in my focus of swimming when i realized that i had a talent I was swimming next to somebody that really could have been considered a hero, even though I would have never admitted it at the time, which is this guy, and I mentioned in this in his show already. His name was Don Schollander.
1: Mm-hmm. He
6: was the pinnacle of our sport, winning four gold medals, like Jesse Owens, you know, and, mm-hmm. and the Olympic games in Berlin for track and field in the 30s. I mean, he was like the gold standard. He was the holy grail of swimming. Um, and I learned a lot from him by observing. Um, was he a nice guy? Did I, you course, talk to I, him? I surpassed him.
3: Yeah, well, that's the thing. You now, you're, you're on an island, Mark Spitz, literally, not Hawaii. You're on the Mark Spitz Island when you surpass your hero. But I think that's really what it's all about. I can't ask Michelangelo who his hero is. Maybe it was Phidias, the sculptor for the Greeks. But in the end, it's a lonely place sometimes to be your own hero. But in order to become...
6: I, I think I think the bottom line is there's a commonality of somebody that that uh, is yeah. consistently always up there in the front. Um, and you consider or the public considers them as being great and that Mm -hmm. was is that our legacy or the things that we had done in our athletic career uh, become a matter of measure Mm -hmm. which others may judge themselves by and and that is the greatest legacy that we can leave on our sport that somebody was inspired by something that we may have accomplished and they then set themselves up to want to achieve those similar goals um, and, and that's the impact that we can have on what we have meant to the sport. And, and for that, I take solace and, and comfort to know that somebody like a Michael Phelps 36 years later broke my record and right. that I was alive to even witness it. Right. It's just a testament that I could understand how good I was when somebody else broke my record.
3: Well, I want you to know something outside of swimming. I got motivated to go to Columbia, to train at the hospital for special surgery, to be the best orthopedic surgeon. And those patients yesterday in surgery, they benefit from the skill set that I got. But even though you're a swimmer and I'm an orthopedic surgeon, you also inspired me to be the best at what I could be as an orthopedic surgeon, even though it's not swimming. And that, to me, is your ultimate legacy and I can't thank you enough. And thank you for getting up early. I mean, I don't know what to do. I better not check my blood pressure because I, I'm verklempt right now talking to you. <laughs> you're, you're just the greatest, Mark Spitz. And thank you so much for making the time. And now everyone can appreciate how beautiful the journey has been for you and how you did it from within. And you do it with class and with professionalism. You represent all of us the greatest. So thank you once again, Mark.
6: Well, thank you for having me on there. And if the takeaway from this interview is is it's never too late to be the person you thought you could be. And it starts right from this yeah. moment on. Right,
3: right. Yeah, we'll, we'll remember that. I can't wait to meet you in person one day. Have a great Saturday with your family. Talk soon. Thank you. Okay, that's the great Mark Spitz. Okay, now, Steve Pellett, we need a commercial because I have to calm down because that was unbelievable. Weekend Warriors, I hope you enjoyed it. The number is 877-710 ESPN. You're now listening to Dr. Clapper and probably the happiest he's ever been in 10 and a half years on this station. Wow. Coming up next, I'll take your calls. 877-710 ESPN and I got to tell you where those cherry peppers come from. Rocket
1: man, shoes are Holy emoji, Clap, man. Hey, what's up? It's LZ. Look, you know there's no better way to start your Saturday than with Dr. Clapper and The Weekend Warrior Show. 7 and 9 a.m.
5: Saturday mornings. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. Start your weekend off right, listening to The Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. I'm Big Clap. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it
3: note for note. Don't worry. Be happy. Oh, am I happy. In every life
6: we have some trouble. But when you worry, you make it double. Don't worry. Welcome Be back, happy.
3: Weekend Warriors. You're listening happy. to a very happy Dr. Clapper. Because I got to talk to Michelangelo. I got to talk to my Michelangelo, Mark Spitz. The seven-time gold medalist from the 72 Olympics in the psychological warfare. What a genius idea that he realized, I'm going to still keep my mustache. Everybody else is shaving every part of their body, no hair. Not him. Can you imagine how intimidating that must have been for those other swimmers? It's like Mike Tyson getting in the ring. He already won the fight just stepping into the ring because he's so scary. By the way, stay tuned at 9 o'clock. It's L.A. Gridiron Weekly with my man, Kirk Morrison, talking all things L.A. football. I just want him to talk about Joe Burrow. Even though I'm a Rams fan, a Rams season ticket holder, I am rooting for one guy. And thanks to the great Neil Elatrash, a guest on our show and a good friend of mine. Who rebuilt Joe Burrow's knee. I just cannot wait to see him play for the Cincinnati Bengals this year. mm mm Let's talk food. La Victoria Salsa. I like the medium. You can get the chunky style if you want. And I pour it all over the eggs I make every morning. I have eggs every single morning. My dad taught me that. Every morning growing up, he made eggs the protein, the lecithin. Don't let them scare you with the cholesterol business. It's phenomenal. And now I have it with an avocado. I don't have the bread as much anymore. But there's something I put on that salsa, that La Victoria salsa, that you talk about kicking it up a notch. It's cherry peppers, crushed. They're sweet. They're fiery. And God bless Jersey Mike's. And they're not paying me to say this. Although, that would be nice to get sandwiches from them one day, Steve Paulette. My mouth is watering already. Because when you go to Jersey Mike's and you ask, okay, what kind of toppings you want? There it is, that giant vat of that red chopped cherry peppers. I ate a few of their sandwiches. I'm going, to hell with the turkey and all the rest. I just want to eat. I just want to get my wetsuit on and dive into that vat of cherry peppers. So I went looking for them. And by the way, Papa Jake's in town makes the best Philly cheese sandwich in LA. You can get him at the Grove. He's amazing. Brings the bread in from Philadelphia, but that's a whole nother food item. But that's his secret. He puts cherry peppers on top of his Philly cheesesteaks, which are unbelievable. So I went looking for these cherry peppers and I found them. They're in a tall glass jar. They're called hoagie spread because in some place in the world a hoagie is a sandwich like a subway a hoagie hoagie spread and the company is called cento c-e-n-t-o it's c-e-n pronounced ch because it's italian and where can you find them gelson's that's where i found them ralph's didn't have it but gelson's did take it from dr clapper have eggs Today, tomorrow, pour some salsa on it, whatever one you want, but then put some of this stuff on it. Or make yourself a sandwich and spread some of these cento cherry peppers on it. You will thank me a thousand times. Mm. Let's talk about next week. Although I do want to tell one story. I have time to tell. I got to tell you a story. I was in surgery this week, on Monday, I do, I do a lot of sports medicine, a lot of rotator cuffs, a lot of anterior cruciate ligament tears, in addition to the joint replacements that I do. So I'm in Monday, this past Monday, I was doing all these beautiful sports cases, and I'm in the locker room in between cases, and the anesthesiologist sits down next to me, and I see on his phone he's listening to some kind of Stevie Ray Vaughan song or whatever between his cases. And I start talking to him about playing guitar playing. Anyway, one thing leads to another. He tells me he has a guitar collection, and he shows me a picture in his house. He's a major, I, can't, I don't even know his name, guitar I said to him, okay, you're Mr. Big Shot with the guitar. Let me ask you a question that I've always wondered. It's like a secret of life question. Why does Jimi Hendrix sound so much different than everybody else who plays the guitar? Eric Clapton, Carlos Santana, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Robert Cray, I can go down the whole list, but Jimi Hendrix sounds like nobody else. Why is that? We should play a Jimi Hendrix song like, when he hits the, and strums the guitar. And he says, Dr. Clapper, because he's a lefty. And there's a soundbite of Eric Clapton, almost in tears, saying, I wanted to give a gift to Jimi Hendrix. I got him a Fender guitar for lefties, because they're made for righties. I got him a lefty one. And I went to go bring it to him, but I found out that day that he died. And Eric Clapton starts tearing up in this soundbite. Because what did Jimi Hendrix do? He turned the guitar upside down. He's a lefty. The guitar's made for righties. So the top three strings of a six-string guitar are the bass sounds, the the deeper notes, and the lower three strings on a guitar— I didn't know this. I'm not a guitar player—are the higher pitch notes. Well, when you turn the guitar upside down and you strum the guitar— Your fingers end on the thunderous, denser notes. And that is exactly why, because nobody else is playing the guitar upside down. That's why he sounds different than everybody else. Can you imagine? There you go. Now you know the whole story. Fantastic. And next week, I'm so excited. I already am thinking about the sound bites. I have my guest, Dr. Liz Hicks. She's a veterinarian. She is amazing. And her understanding of that world, that space between humans and animals, particularly I want to talk about horses, that communication. Remember the TV show Mr. Ed? Many of you are too young to remember, but go look on YouTube. It's the greatest show ever because the horse talks. And Alan Young, I'm going to have a soundbite for you, says, you know, my hair was blonde, and the Palomino horse that was Mr. Ed was blonde, so when my head passed in front of the horse, you would lose the top of my head in the TV show, which was black and white. So they were going to get a different horse so that you'd see the contrast in the color better. He said, no, this is the horse. And Alan Young dyed his hair dark so he could, he said, I would do anything for Ed. That's what I want to get into next week. That relationship of human and animal. Until then, I leave you with Volare, which means I'm singing and I'm flying. And boy, was I singing today. See you on the radio.
1: Check out the Weekend Warrior Facebook Know Know Your Knee 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 Post. One of the most complicated areas of the body. ACL, PCL, MCL. Patella supplication. Really? Dr. Clapper translates the language of your knee Dr. Clapper. on the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Whoa. Simply type in Weekend Warrior in the search bar and click on Doc's picture. Wow! Your knee feels better already. Damn right. Like, follow, and feel better Hello there. with the Weekend Warrior Facebook page.